We're uh, on a series, our present series is entitled Big Questions. And uh, our big question this morning is, are Christianity and science compatible? And many people believe that uh, there is uh, incompatibility between science and faith, that they actually conflict, and uh, that one deals with faith and the other deals with facts. Before jumping into the, uh, the subject this morning a little bit at the deep end, I think I probably need a few words of explanation. Um, our big question talks on a Sunday morning, we've, this is the third in our series of eight, they might feel quite different to other talks that you would be used to on a Sunday morning. And there's a good reason for that. They are. They are different. Because what we're attempting to do in these Sunday mornings is to answer questions that people who are on the outside of the Christian faith often asked. So this morning, our subject is, are Christianity and science compatible? Well, I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor. And I'm attempting this morning to answer this, uh, this big question in a way which is helpful and also understandable to a very, very mixed congregation of people. Most of you don't have PhDs in science, although I know that some of you do. And that frightens the living daylight out of me, <laughs> me standing here in front of you <coughs> in fear and trembling. So what I'll do is try to uh, answer the big question of whether science and uh, Christianity are compatible in a largely non-technical way. And this is certainly not meant to be a lecture on evolution. I want to say as well that I hope that my words might help you <coughs> to realize that you can be a scientist or at least embrace a scientific viewpoint and be a follower of Christ, that the two things are not contradictory. And lastly, before we pray and get started, there are many, many people with far greater intellects than mine who can take you on this subject much further than I can this morning. And I would encourage you that if this is a subject that you are interested in, then go on websites like the John Lennox website, and there are hours and hours of lectures and debates on video, and it's all absolutely fascinating stuff. Okay. That's the preamble. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we ask you this morning for your help, not only to understand the facts of the question, but more importantly, to understand that you're a God who is awesome and majestic, a God who created and sustains the whole universe, a God who wonderfully revealed himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus. And you are also one who causes us to make sense of the world in which we live and the world in which we are a part. Lord, we thank you. Amen. On the 31st of October 1993, the New York Times ran a fascinating article entitled, After 350 years, Vatican says Galileo was right. It moves. More than 350 years after the Roman Catholic Church condemned the Italian astronomer and physicist Galileo 
for heresy, Pope John Paul II reversed the decision and said to everyone that Galileo, all those years back, was wrongfully condemned. All Galileo did was endorse the theory of the Polish scientist Copernicus a hundred years before him, who claimed that the sun, not the earth, was at the centre of the solar system. Since the second century, it was believed that the sun and all the other planets just revolved around a motionless earth, and that was known as the Ptolemaic view. So what was the problem? The problem was that the church understood the Bible to teach that the earth, not the sun, was the centre of the solar system. And the church of the time read verses like Psalm 104 verse 5, which says, He, meaning God, set the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. They also looked at verses like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5, which says, The sun rises and the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. And the church believed, wrongly believed, that to teach that the sun was at the centre of the solar system and not the earth was heresy. You see, that church at that time made the same mistake that many Christians make today. They took some verses of the Bible which should have been understood metaphorically and they understood them to be literal verses. Now, Galileo was uh, forced out, uh, forced by the church under threat of being burned at the stake to renounce his discoveries at an inquisition and then for the last eight years of his life he was put under house arrest. At least the Catholic Church eventually made amends, even though it was 350 years too late. Persecution of scientists didn't stop in the 17th century. We got examples in the 20th century. Some of you might have heard of John T. Scopes, uh, who was a high school teacher for te from Tennessee in the USA. And um, he was prosecuted for violating state law. You may say, well, what was his crime? His crime was that he taught the theory of evolution. He was uh, convicted and he was fined $100, which was a huge amount in those days. On appeal, he was acquitted, but only on a technicality that he had been fined excessively. Those that believe that science and Christianity are incompatible often quote the famous, or should I say infamous, debate that took place at Oxford University Museum on the 30th of June, 1860. Just seven months after Charles Darwin wrote his famous research on the origins of species. Various prominent scientists and philosophers gathered and were on the panel. And the debate is best remembered for an exchange between Bishop Samuel Wilberforce and T.H. Huxley, who was a biologist and, and uh, was a great supporter of Darwin. And Wilberforce ridiculed Huxley by asking him whether he was related to the monkey on his grandmother's side or his grandfather's side of the family. And uh, Huxley replied that he would not be ashamed to have a monkey for his ancestor, but he would be ashamed to be connected with a man who used his great gifts to obscure the truth. Touché. So, are science and Christianity incompatible? You might think so, from some of the stories that I've just uh, quoted to you. After all, someone might ask, 
Doesn't one deal with facts and the other deal with faith? Doesn't one deal with proofs and the other ask for belief? Hasn't science done away with the need for faith? Isn't the book of Genesis some kind of fairy tale? Can any right-thinking person really, in the 21st century, believe in Adam and Eve? Maybe a good person to answer this will be Professor John Lennox, who is both a Christian and a scientist. He has three doctorates in maths and science. And we're just going to listen to this. Those who were around in Alpha this week would have seen this short clip. Please work. There's a widespread impression in the public that science and God don't mix. And that's curious, because if you think of the rise of science in the 16th and 17th centuries, all its pioneers believed in God. In fact, they were Christian in some sense or other. You talk about Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and so on. Kepler famously said, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. So far from their belief in God hindering their science, it was the very motor that drove it. Because they believed in a creator, a rational spirit behind the universe, they thought that science was worth doing, and so they did it. So I'm not remotely embarrassed at saying I'm both a scientist and a Christian, because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. We study God's revelation both in the natural world and in scripture with the minds that God has given us. And I believe there's no conflict ultimately between those two sides properly understood. Okay, John Lennox himself is a, is a brilliant man and in a long line of scientists who were also Christians. Some of those that we've mentioned already, Galileo, Copernicus, they were Christians. Kepler, the man who was the founder of modern optics. Sir Isaac Newton, who formalized the laws of gravity. Michael Faraday was one of the greatest scientists in the 19th century and also a Christian. He's the guy who appeared for quite a while on the back of uh, 20 pound notes. Uh, for many years. Such was his standing in the world of science. Others like Robert Boyle and many, many, many others also provide proof that Christianity and science are not incompatible. Again, a few weeks ago, I think it was possibly on the second week that we met together for the Alpha course, we were introduced to a brilliant scholar by the name of Dr. Francis Collins. And Dr. Francis Collins heads up the Human Genome Project, mapping the three billion letters of DNA, considered by many to be the, probably the most important scientific undertaking of our age. And I just want you now just to listen to his story for a few moments. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. 
But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that in fact given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible uh, and many other things including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician that brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. Okay. So I would argue that um, Christianity and science are not in opposition to each other, but they actually complement one another. Science makes observations, it carries out experiments, formulates hypotheses, tests them, defines them, produces a theory which best, uh, believes, it believes best explains the facts, and none of those things are at odds with Christianity. Essentially, Christianity and science are answering different questions. Science answers the questions of how and when. Christianity answers the questions of who and why. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Did you know, for example, that um, violin strings were made, made originally of sheep's intestines, which were stretched, dried, and twisted? Well, they were. So 
I suppose you could say that uh, uh, on a scientist making comment here, he would be per perfectly correct in defining the playing of a violin as rubbing the entrails of a dead sheep with the hairs of a dead horse. You see, that would be entirely true, but it would only be true at one particular level. It wouldn't say anything at all about the sounds. Are they harmonious or not? It wouldn't be t saying anything about the different kinds of music or why the violinist in the first place decided to play the violin. Another example would be um, the way that kiss, a kiss, was defined by one old communist's uh, dictionary. A kiss is the approach of two pairs of lips with reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide. Again, that's a definition which is absolutely true, but it's only true at one level. You know, if I said to you, no, I won't go there. <laughs> Can you let's exchange microbes? You know, it's not, it hasn't quite got the same ring about it, has it really? But you see, that definition doesn't say anything about love or pleasure or who is, kiss, who is kissing whom and for what reason. And Christianity and science are also making statements from different perspectives. And those statements are not necessarily incompatible. They're only incompatible, I say, when either Christians claim too much or when scientists claim too much. And I'll come back to that in a moment. John Lennox that we saw in the video a few moments ago, he uses this following illustration. He said, if you went to a conference and you brought a cake to a conference, and in this conference you have a number of top academics in various disciplines. In that conference you have a, a famous nutritionist, and you have a leading biochemist, and you have a physicist. The nutritionist will look at the cake and talk about the balance of the various foods that form the cake. The biochemist would analyse the cake in a biochemical way. The physicist might be talking about electrons and protons and quarks. But then you ask all these academics, why was that cake made and who made it? And they simply don't have an answer to that. Until, of course, you introduce Aunt Matilda, who informs the academics that she made the cake for her nephew, Johnny, whose birthday it is next week. You see, his point is this, that no amount of scientific analysis, however exhaustive and detailed, can answer those questions. And no amount of scientific analysis of our planet will tell you why it was made and for what reason it was made. Unless, of course, the creator himself comes to reveal those things. And the wonderful news is that he has done, and he has done so in the person of Jesus Christ. As someone once said, Science can give us the know-how, but it cannot give us the know-why. <clears throat> I said a moment ago that uh, I think that the big problem between science and Christianity is that some Christians on the one hand and some scientists on the other actually claim too much. And one classic and also harmful example of this, um, of a Christian who claimed too much, was a 17th century archbishop named Archbishop... James Usher, and he went through the pages of the Bible, working out from all the genealogies how old the earth was, and he came to the conclusion that it was actually, uh, the world came about, it was created in the year 4004 BC. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> 
In fact, um, if some of you have an old Schofield Bible in your home somewhere, the old Schofield Bible has that in its uh, side notes, that, uh, the bio- that the earth was created in 4004. Nothing wrong with the Schofield Bible, but the notes are rubbish. All right, you know, sort of uh, sorry about that. Um, Usher then actually went further than that, and um, he claimed that the, the world actually came into existence at 9 o'clock in the morning on October the 23rd, 4004. <laughs> which is hilarious, you know, it really is. But I think that such claims as that and others like that are actually harmful because those who are not Christians think that the majority of Christians believe in an earth which is 6,000 years old and that we are burying our heads in the sand and that we're ignoring scientific evidence like the proverbial ostrich. And then what happens is, Everybody, the whole church, all Christians everywhere, they get tarred with the same brush. Let me just put it on the record. I'm quite happy to accept scientific findings that the earth is probably about 5 billion years old. And that in no way compromises my faith. Absolutely not. So I spoke of Christians who sometimes go much too far. But also scientists do as well. I'm sure you've all heard of Richard Dawkins, professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University, who claims it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, and insane. Or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that. Well, Richard, you just did, actually, by saying that. You know, with Richard Dawkins, sometimes I, I just want to encourage him, you know, because... You know, he's too bashful, isn't he, really? He's too, he's too modest. <laughs> Incidentally, following that quote, he went on to say that the thing that he particularly dis- dislikes about creationists is that they're intolerant. <laughs> okay. When we're speaking about evolution, what are we talking about? We're talking about two things. First of all, we're talking about microevolution, which speaks of variances within species of plants and animals. And that explains to us why there are 200 species or varieties of dogs. Varieties, not species. Uh, Cows can be bred for improved milk production. Bacteria can adapt and develop uh, and be resistant to antibiotics. That's why we have the superbugs in hospitals. And microevolution, there is absolutely nothing at all controversial about that. There is overwhelming evidence for it. However, Dawkins is referring to macroevolution, which claims that life began millions of years ago with a single cell creature, which then developed through mutation and natural selection into a vast array of plant and animal life that populate the planet. And supposedly humans and apes came from common ancestors. Many scientists like Dawkins believe that macroevolution is a fact. It's not a fact, it's a theory. And it isn't accepted by all scientists either. People like Sir Frederick Hoyle, who wasn't a Christian, claimed, and let me just read this quote to you. The idea that life was put together by random shuffling of constituent molecules 
can be shown to be as ridiculous and improbable as the proposition that a tornado blowing through a junkyard may assemble a Boeing 747. That's a great quote. It's one which is often used. And there's a guy who is an extremely prominent scientist who just simply could not believe uh, macroevolution, I suppose. Some of you here with maybe higher education degrees in philosophy or sociology, you might have come across uh, the name Anthony Flew. I first heard of Anthony Flew when my daughter Sean was in uh, university, in Cardiff University, studying sociology and philosophy in 2004. And uh, I remember Sean telling me about this guy, that he was one of the world's leading atheistic philosophers and he had been one of the leading atheistic philosophers for 50 years. He wrote books and articles against the Christian faith and why we should believe in atheism. Uh, he debated with Christian academics. And his first, first atheist paper was entitled Theology and Falsification, which was the most widely reprinted philosophical paper of the entire 20th century. This guy was very, very well known. It's not every day that a leading academic will announce to the world that he has been wrong all of his teaching life, uh, his entire career. And that happened on the 9th of December 2004. The Associated Press ran, ran an article which was headlined, Famous Atheist Now Believes in God. The subtitle was, One of World's Leading Atheists Now Believes in God, More or Less Based on Scientific Evidence. And that was really interesting to see what was happening at that time because it, it provoked all sorts of comments in the press. Some of his old atheist friends were saying, he's, he's, he's old, he's lost the plot, he's too old to think, he's getting close to death, therefore he may be wanting to get, get right with God. And there were all this, these sad comments really which were in the newspapers. As far as I'm aware... Anthony Flew, although he believed in a divine mind that created all that there is, he never actually became a Christian, not, not that I know of, sadly. Uh, but all he was claiming was that when he looked at the laws of nature, they pointed to a divine mind that enabled the universe to exist. Okay. So what about the stories that we've got in Genesis? What about Adam and Eve? What about the stories of apple trees and talking snakes? Isn't this the stuff of fairy tales? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> I wish there was someone else here to answer it, but it's me. First thing I'd remind ourselves is that the Bible gives us answers to the question of why. But science offers us the the how answers. The Bible isn't a scientific textbook. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that Christians themselves, and maybe many of us in this room today, we have different views on how to answer that question. There are some Christians I know, I'm not one of them, who believes that God created the earth in six days, literal days, as we read in Genesis. Other Christians interpret Genesis differently. They point out that the word day has many different meanings in scripture. 
You can have the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And sometimes day speaks of an unspecified time, such as when we say, back in my granddad's day. And these Christians would argue that the sun did not appear until day four in the creation story in Genesis. So therefore, the writer was not thinking about 24-hour solar days, which I think is a fair point. Many other Christians think of the creation story in Genesis as a kind of literary device, a literary work, a little bit like an ancient poem or prose, not associated with chronological events in history. Did you know that poetic language can be true without it being literally, literally true? Think about that for a moment. Look at this verse, 1 Peter 3, 2, and I could have chosen probably hundreds, if not thousands of verses. It says there, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Someone might look at that verse and say, Hey, hang on a second, what's that talking about? Surely the Bible teaches that God is spirit. He doesn't have literal eyes and ears and a face. You see, whilst all Christians, I'm sure all Christians in here, this room this morning, we would believe that that verse is true. Meaning that the Lord sees everything. That our lives are an open book before him. That verse is not true in a literal sense. Again, we spoke earlier on of the verse in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1 verse 5. Which says, the sun rises and sets... And hurries back to where it rises. Now, the church in Galileo's time insisted that this scripture should be understood literally rather than metaphorically. You see, whilst that verse is not literally true, I believe it is true at another level. Another level of understanding. All of us here, we speak in terms of the sun rising and the sun setting. What we are actually speaking about is dawn and dusk, yes? We're not making a scientific statement when we're speaking about the sun rising and the sun setting. We're not suggesting that the sun is going around a motionless earth. So that verse as well is true without it being literally true. And those who hold this view of Genesis and, uh, would say the same about those more curious and bizarre aspects of the creation story like talking snakes and fig leaf underpants and things like that. The important thing for us, though, the important thing for us is to ask, in which way is it true? What truths does God want to teach us and bring out of that creation story? And let me offer six of them to you. Or maybe not. Or maybe not. You've seen the rest of my sermon. Now you may as well go home. Okay, I'll leave that up for a moment. Don't know what's happened with that. The six things. Number one, that God is the creator of all things. Secondly, that God's creation was good. 
Thirdly, the third thing that we learn from this story is that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation and they are made in God's image. Fourthly, that God has a special relationships with humans. Fifthly, that he has given us a responsibility to be good stewards of his world. And sixthly, we are taught in those early chapters of Genesis the important message that we've all gone astray and rebelled against our creator. And those are really, really important messages. You see, whatever you believe on this, I think that we need to remember that the main point of Genesis is not to answer how and when, you know, the scientific uh, questions, but rather it's the who and the why, the theological questions. And God has revealed himself uh, in creation supremely in Jesus Christ. We've got the, the words there of uh, Psalm 19 up before us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. You see, creation speaks. And that is essentially what that philosopher Anthony Flew was saying, that he realised... That even though he was the most notorious atheist in the world, he realized that there is order here and that the natural laws only make sense simply because of the divine mind behind them. The Apostle Paul then says in the um, uh, New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Again, he's speaking of creation, speaking about the wonders of God. God's revelation through creation will point us towards the existence of God. It might demonstrate to us that there is a personal creator. A personal creator with tremendous power. Someone with amazing intellect, intelligence, imagination. But unless we have the Bible... There's little more that we could ever know about God through creation. We might look at the splendor of the world around us. We might be blown away by the facts and the figures of astronomy. We might be convinced by the laws of nature that there's a super intelligence, that there's a divine mind behind the universe. But creation will not tell us much more than that. We need another kind of knowledge, a special revelation. And thankfully... God has not left us in the dark regarding that. That this supreme mind, this incredibly intelligent designer that we see in creation, he tells us who he is through the pages of scripture. That it is Jesus. And without Jesus, we would never have known anything about the God that we have become aware of in nature. You see, as we look at... um, Scripture, as we look at creation, rather, the setting sun on a beautiful array of autumn colours, the turning of seasons, harvest, we are reminded that creation reveals a creator. But creation is not designed to tell us any more than that. We need knowledge, knowledge which is far beyond general knowledge. We need a specific knowledge, a knowledge that the scriptures bring us, that Jesus is that creator God and what he is like. Perhaps the most famous scientist of our generation, uh, Stephen Hawking, Professor Stephen Hawking, says, 
Science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question why the universe bothers to exist. It's a good quote. You see, science, as wonderful as it is, cannot speak into the deepest needs of human beings. Science cannot tell us about our purpose on earth. Science cannot tell us about the meaning to life. Science cannot tell us or make any sense of our times of suffering and our times of joy. Science has nothing at all to say to us of what is beyond this life. Science can't deal with the problem of loneliness. Science can't deal with hearts broken by grief. Science can't solve moral dilemmas. Science provides no remedy at all for the problem of unforgiven sin and guilt. Only in Jesus, in Jesus, do we have the answer to all of those problems and questions. We need science. We need scientists. But more than that, I believe that we need Christianity. And we need Jesus. Let's pray together. Guys, if you'd like to come back as well. Lord, we thank you for all the scientific and technological advancement in our world today. We realize, Lord, that we are living in astonishing days, days of great progress. But yet, Lord, as that scientist once said, we're only thinking your thoughts after you. Dear Lord, I just pray that we will use scientific discovery wisely for the advancement of our world and not for greed or destruction. I thank you, Lord, for the many scientists who are also Christians who use their skills wisely for the benefit of others. Amen. Amen.